31st. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon, and tonight we present a review of the recent best-selling novel, Secret Machines. That's S-E-K-R-E-T, Secret Machines, Chasing Shadows, by Tom DeLonge and A.J. Hartley. This book purports to be the truth about the phenomenon, UFOs, ancient aliens, the Nazi bell, and all of presented as fiction. It is very effective as a Dean Kuntz, Dan Brown-style, multiple-viewpoint thriller. Readers will at first believe that this is a novelized version of the X-Files TV series, but the final chapter proves that the 1940s Shaver mystery by Raymond A. Palmer and Richard S. Shaver was the real original inspiration for this project. Now, we do not say this to discredit Secret Machines, but rather to recommend it. So, if you want to spend an hour with us in the absolute elsewhere, tune in and we will take the elevator down to the deep utilities and visit with the Darrows who run the New World Order. <coughs> yeah, like Ben Sullivan used to say, we got a really big show tonight. Okay. Please do not assume from the title of this review, the title of this review being The Shaver Mystery Redo, that I am trying to discredit this novel. I wrote and produced a film on the same theme. So I am complimenting the authors and producers of this book for what so far seems a more successful approach to reviving the 1940s Shaver mystery. Actually, they are reviving it the same way it was originally created, presenting truth in the form of fiction. In the 1940s, Amazing Stories editor Raymond A. Palmer collaborated with eccentric science fiction writer Richard S. Schaefer to produce and publish a series of novels and stories about ancient astronauts and their subterranean demonic mutant survivors. Now, this revelation came after the atomic bomb, but just before the UFOs. It was discredited by both the scientific and the science fiction communities. But it lived on to spawn and inspire a host of imitators, such as Eric Von Dunnigan and Sitchin, and hundreds of television documentaries about ancient aliens and similar phenomena. Now we have producer Tom DeLong in Ray Palmer's chair, and novelist A.J. Hartley in Shaver's seat, again launching the mystery as fiction. Shaver once asked Palmer, what style do you want me to write these stories in? And Palmer answered, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Well, because he was publishing John Carter stories and amazing stories at that time. And Shaver complied. Now, if A.J. Hartley needed to be given similar instructions, it might have gone like this. Hartley would ask, how do I write this novel? And DeLong would say, get Dean Kuntz's How to Write Best-Selling Fiction. That was Dan Brown's secret weapon. And write it like the Da Vinci Code, which was exactly what Hartley did. 
Secret Machines is a well-crafted, Kunstbrown-style thriller. Chapter 1 arcs to the climax. The clock is always ticking. The good guys are likable. The bad guys are awful, especially Skeletor, which they borrowed from our Canaanite masters of the universe. And the multiple-viewpoint cliffhanging chapters are worthy of the old Republic serials, which inspired Indiana Jones. In short, it is a fun read. But what truth is hidden behind the fictional veil? And what connects it to the original Shaver mystery? Well, in order to answer these questions, I will have to subject the reader and the listener of this review to some spoilers. So I was going to tell the reader, if you want to enjoy the book uh, as a well-crafted thriller, you better stop reading now. But uh, you're listening, so you can't. So I got you. But the reader of the review, when we publish it, can stop right now and then read the book and then come back and finish the review. Before we start summarizing, let me qualify my supposition that this book is a rerun of the Shaver mystery. It certainly is that. But it also draws on Admiral Byrd's reports, 1947, The X-Files, 1993-2002, The Iron Mountain Report, 1967, and even Network, 1976, and The Men in Black, the folklore more than the film. Along with the works of Jacques Vallée, Joseph Farrell, Michael E. Sala, and numerous other accounts of UFO sightings and encounters. The fictionalized episodes are based largely on these actual accounts. Now we begin the story with the protagonist, Major Alan Young, a Marine Corps Harrier pilot flying ground support missions in Afghanistan. Now he's offering air support on a special ops extraction mission when he encounters Russian helicopter gunships. And they are protected by a UFO that disables his Harrier's weapons systems. Now, Young, after he lands, Young is offered a choice. Join the CIA or face a courts martial. Well, of course, he joins the CIA, and he's posted to Area 51 to receive training in flying unconventional aircraft. Now, his mentor, Murat, is a multinational agent, mostly French, who acts as his flight instructor on a triangular anti-grav Astra TR-3B, or the Locust, as the Dreamland pilots call it. Now, this is actually an SR-91 Aurora, which is still officially classified as mythical, meaning it was leaked to the public but never confirmed. Now, Alan soon masters the Locust, and is sent out on a U-2-type mission to overfly Moscow. Now, this is another setup, like his experience in Afghanistan. Russian anti-grav fighters called Arrowheads chase him home. Alan is beginning to suspect that there is something rotten in the state of dreamland. Well, besides Alan, there are three other main characters with stories running chapter by chapter concurrently throughout the novel. Hartley holds to the old Edgar Rice Burroughs formula of multiple viewpoint from chapter to chapter. Now, Burroughs would drop several characters in different parts of Africa and bring them all together with Tarzan for the climax. 
Uh, I got to do a Charles Neal for you, but that uh, you know, I'm, I could if I wanted to. But anyway, <laughs> for the most part, Hartley does this well, and mercifully keeps his to each chapter. With this method, you can tell the story as many times as you have major characters involved and weave all of their narratives together to create a 600-page doorstopper of a book, which, if skillfully written, is hard to put down. And this is hard to put down. Jennifer Quinn is the British heiress to an assassinated tycoon who has been reluctantly financing the Black Ops Project at Dreamland all the way from London. Jennifer is a socialist humanitarian who spends most of her time doing charity work in third world countries. She is a rebel against her father's corporate mentality and power, but she loves him nonetheless, and is now on a personal quest to find his killer and the motives behind his assassination. She finds suspicious financial data in her father's files. She confides in one of her father's business associates uh, and some Frenchman who lures her to a meeting and then tries to kill her. She escapes and flies to the United States to continue her search for the truth. Remember, the truth is out there. Now, Tim Kamars is a young black female journalist who edits an anti-conspiracy and UFO debunking blog or webzine. Now, she has received a mysterious package, which is too light for a bomb, but might be anthrax. She opens it very carefully and finds a journal inside. The journal is from a now-deceased Polish-Jewish former U.S. naval officer, Jersey Allen Stern. Now, his letter inside the journal frankly tells her how dangerous the book is. He is certainly right about that. Tim reads the journal and sets out to investigate its authenticity. She very quickly finds herself stalked by assassins posing as police and federal agents, very much like Jennifer's experience in England. However, Timka, like Jennifer, is undaunted. She is determined to search for the truth. Again, the tagline from the X-Files, the truth is out there. So what is in Jersey's journal? Plenty. For starters, he worked on the infamous Nazi Bell Project at Wenceslas, Poland in 1945. This was an unconventional anti-grab or trans-dimensional vehicle that has been described in numerous books and documentary films. It was the most secret of the Nazi's secret weapons. Jersey was just a teenager when the Nazis evacuated Wenceslas. He helped the Polish resistance sabotage their retreat, but apparently the Bell escaped and made its way to South America and eventually to Antarctica. Jersey follows the Bell like a bloodhound on the track of a fugitive, quite literally, because the Nazi SS officer, underleader, in charge of the Bell project had killed Jersey's older brother. So Jersey is debriefed by an American naval officer who is part of a newly formed intelligence agency. Jersey enlists in the U.S. Navy and helps in the hunt for the Nazi belt. 
Jersey and the Navy team find the secret Nazi installation in the jungles of northern Argentina. Their American team leader betrays them. This is a common theme throughout the novel. No one can be trusted. But they succeed in forcing the Nazis to escape in the bell to Antarctica. Jersey joins Admiral Byrd's Operation High Jump and participates in an attack on the Nazi Bell installation. Now, a flying disc with Nazi insignias rises from the subterranean hangar, but it is not quite ready for aerial combat and is shot down by American P-51s from a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. Now, this is an urban myth. The high jumps carriers, lands-based aircraft, were C-47 Goonie Birds, not B-51 Mustangs. But nevertheless, the Nazis surrender. Obergruppenfuhrer Ungerleader is captured with his MacGuffin. Now, MacGuffin is an object like the Maltese Falcon that symbolizes the story. And now, in this case, it's a box contains an ancient hieroglyphic tablet and a mysterious extraterrestrial metal. Ungerleader escapes Jersey's vengeance by joining the American Operation Paperclip, and he takes his MacGuffin with him. Years later, after Ungerleader has retired from Paperclip, Jersey tracks him down, kills him, and takes the MacGuffin, which he hides in an underground vault near Area 51. Now, all of this is recorded in his journal, which Tim Kamars has. Well, meanwhile, Tim Kamars is investigating a New World Order-controlled rest home for retired Operation Paperclip Germans and their families. Now, she risks her life to meet with an elderly woman who knew Jersey Ellen Stern. Now, this old German lady has preserved a gift from her deceased engineer father a piece of the strange otherworldly metal with the ancient inscriptions, like the one in Ungerleader's MacGuffin box. Now, before she can return to her New York office, Timka is abducted by what appear to be aliens and whisked off to a Russian version of Dreamland in Siberia. She is one tough lady and will not submit to their experiments. She overpowers and unmasks the alien physician, revealing him to be a small, fragile human being. But having read Jersey's journal, she knows where the Nazi MacGuffin is hidden. And having been interrogated by the ersatz aliens, they also know that she knows. And they capture her again and whisk her off to America's dreamland and dump her in the desert near Area 51. Obviously, so she'll lead him to it where she meets Jennifer Quinn, who is running from the men in black, who are posing as agents of EPA, protecting endangered desert wildlife. Now, both women exchange confidences, bond in their common goal, and set out to find the MacGuffin. Meanwhile, Major Alan Young and his buddy, Sergeant Regis of base security, have uncovered a plot to destroy Dreamland. Their commanding officer, Agent Hatcher, has been killed, and Agent Morat, the French locust pilot who was Alan's instructor, is a traitor. Mo Rat, we should have guessed. And he has stolen a locust 
to join a squadron of Russian arrowheads now in American airspace heading for Area 51. Oh, boy. Yeah, the settlers better circle the wagons here. This is much, and much like the film Independence Day, Allen decides to fly an untested prototype disc ship re-engineered and reconstructed from the crashed Roswell craft. You remember Area 51 with Will Smith. The controls are entirely telepathic, and he must trust to his instinctive pilot's empathy with his aircraft when he gets the ship airborne and is soon set upon by the incoming arrowheads. A, a spherical craft appears, the same type that had disabled his weapons in Afghanistan. And Alan assumes that this is an enemy, and he shoots it down. The arrowheads engage him, and Morat escapes in the stolen locust. Alan is in a replay of the Antarctic air battle between the Nazi disc ships and the Mustangs, or perhaps King Kong against the biplanes, or, as the flying tigers used to say about the lightly armed Japanese fighters, they can peck you to death. And down he goes to belly land near the spear ship that has crashed. Now, Sergeant Regis arrives in a Humvee with some of his troops in time to rescue the ladies that are hunting the MacGuffin. And after a brief shootout with the New World Order's version of Skeletor and his EPA men in black, Regis and the women pull Alan out of his wrecked flying disc. At this point, Alan knows that the spear ship was at least technically one of theirs, or one of ours, and he wants to see who or what was flying it. And he looks down into the wrecked cabin and sees the pilot. And, as in a screenplay, we are only allowed a reaction shot of his facial expression. Later, when he is debriefed, he will make a revealing comment on what he has seen. Now, much of what has already been described is in line with the Shaver mystery, but final chapter of Secret Machines makes the connection obvious. In Chapter 83... Major Alan Young is taken deep into an underground facility and transported via monorail further into the subterranean complex for his debriefing. He sits in front of a desk and faces a man he had met before when he first joined CIA's Unconventional Aircraft Division, Agent Kenyon. There is a leather-bound book on the desk between them, not the Bible, it is Homer's Odyssey. Let us go in sequence through the last chapter and cite the Shaver connections. Major Young is taken in a black helicopter, and when they land, Young is blindfolded and taken into a building. He goes down in an elevator. The elevator ride is smooth. He estimates they descend five stories. Still blindfolded, he is led into a big, echoing chamber, as if he's in a cave or a tunnel. He boards a monorail for a five-minute trip further into the cavern. He is taken into an office, seated, and his blindfold is removed. He faces a man across the desk, upon which is a leather-bound book, Homer's Odyssey. I saw inside the sphere, Young says. I saw the pilot. You guys have been experimenting or genetically engineering some kind of... Kenyon interrupts. Tell me, Major, are you religious? Not really young answers. What does that have to do with, with what does this have to do with religion? Well, absolutely everything, Kenyon says, tapping the book. 
though perhaps myth would be a better term than religion, less loaded. Did you ever wonder how the Apollo space program got its name? Well, Apollo was the god of the sun, right? And crossed the sky daily in a glittering chariot, Kenyon agrees. So, Alan says, so let's consider that the chariot was more than metaphorical. Let me get this straight, says Alan. You're saying that the craft we're flying were brought here by aliens, which humans took to be gods, the gods of ancient Greece, but they left and now we have their stuff? Kenyon smiles for a moment and then says, What makes you think they ever left? So there it is, the Shaver mystery summed up in the conversation between two characters in the final chapter of the book. Why? Because Richard Shaver based his ancient alien astronaut stories on the conflicts between the Titans and the Olympians. The Shaver mystery has its roots in Greek mythology. But when the elder gods left this planet to escape the sun's toxic radiation, their progeny that stayed behind hid from the sun's rays in caverns and gradually devolved into a race of mutated demons that Shaver called Daros. These subterranean criminals have haunted and dominated surface-dwelling humans for thousands of years with the incredible technology left behind by the elder gods. When the Shaver mystery achieved popularity in the late 1940s, the efforts of the various establishments to discredit the whole business went into full swing. It was discovered that Shaver had spent years in a mental institution, diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. It was pointed out that his vast cavern network would be impossible to air condition or even ventilate, and that his scientific theories contradicted Einstein, for that matter, so did Tesla's. Shaver was hounded out of the publishing world, his editor and collaborator Ray Palmer went on to exploit the UFO craze that began in the early 1950s and founded the popular Fate magazine. Shaver retreated to a farm in Arkansas and began looking for pictures of his elder gods and barrows in cross-sections of rocks, thus creating his own unique surrealistic art form. His new hobby was obviously therapeutic, because before he died in 1975, he came to the realization that most of the perverted Darrows lived on the surface, not in caverns below. He also theorized that the cavern world might be in another dimension. Now, this would bring Shaver's mystery in line with the thinking of Jacques Vallée and others who have noted that the extraordinary flight characteristics of UFOs seem to indicate interdimensional travel. Interstellar interstellar space flight, well, factor three, Mr. Scott, is interdimensional by implication. Now, before we leave secret machines, let's have a look at the implications of humans disguised as aliens and or human-alien hybrids, as implied by what Alan saw inside the sphere. This takes us back to 1967's Iron Mountain Report, an expose of a military-industrial pre-New World Order think tank plot based on George Orwell's 1984 idea that continual war is necessary to preserve national sovereignty or power. It was allegedly suggested that when globalization was complete and world peace was achieved, 
tyranny over the population could be continued by creating a fake extraterrestrial invasion. Of course, this nightmarish scenario uh, recalls Pearl Harbor on 9-11, and it's not hard to believe that some New World Order people or Darrow's would suggest it. Think about Independence Day, that, that, that film. That, that's, that film's based on, on the, on the uh, uh, Iron Mountain scenario. Although Admiral Byrd's alleged encounters with the Nazi Nordic aliens and his polar expeditions were not part of the Shaver mystery, they have since been adopted into it by Argentinian neo-Nazis. Peter Lavenda, Tom DeLonge's co-author on the sequel to Secret Machines, Gods, Man, and War, has already published a book on South American neo-Nazis, more authentic than his Sumerian Akkadian version of the Necronomicon. Uh, under the under the byline of Simon, we will look forward to reviewing God's Man and Wars as soon as we get a copy. In closing, let me again praise authors DeLong and Hartley for their brilliantly conceived and executed work. It's a great read, even if you don't believe a word of it. Oak Runyon, writer producer, Beyond the Myriad Second Edition. Now, that's the review, but we got. We got some other things we need to talk about and align with this. And, uh, and, and just one moment while I have a sip of coffee here. Mm. Mm, that's good. Now, um, before we get into the other sources, I want to reveal something personal experience. I grew up with a guy, my best friend, who was eventually ended up on Werner von Braun's team at NASA. And uh, and we were we were all through high school, you know, and and, and all and uh, and old Joe was one of the guys that talked me out of the Saber mystery. I, I I really bit on the Saber mystery when I was sixteen. I believed it, you know. I really did. And and uh, Joe and some of my other buddies, uh, uh, they talked me out of it. Uh, they, they, they thought, oh, it was ridiculous, you know, and how the hell do you ventilate those caves and all the rest of this stuff? And, okay, you know, all right, I, 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 finally, uh, I finally, you know, gave it up. And, uh, and, but anyway, Joe ended up, uh, we, you know, we, we, we had a science fiction club, and we also shot off some rockets, too. We had the... St. Petersburg Interplanetary Society. So Joe ends up going to NASA, and and he did a lot of the the equations on the uh, on, on on the lunar mission. Anyway, in nineteen in nineteen sixty seven, Joe came out to California and visited me in my little apartment in Manhattan Beach, and we got gloriously drunk as we used to when we were in high school, and 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 uh, and when Joe was drunk enough, he says, he says, folk, in two years, no less than two years, we are going to make public something about this UFO thing that's going to just plain knock your socks off. And I said, well, come on, tell me now. No, no, he said, I can't, we, we, but we are, in, in, in two years, we're going to review it. Well, uh, two years went by, well, more than two years, about, about three years went by, and he came out again. 
And again, we got gloriously drunk. And I said, okay, Joe, it's been three years now. Where's this great revelation that you guys were going to make about the UFOs? And he looked at me, and he was drunk as a skunk, and he looked at me and bleary-eyed and said, I never said anything like that. What are you talking about? I said, oh, come on. I grew up with you. What the hell? You know, what is this? I'm your, I'm like your brother. You, know, you, you, you told me. He wouldn't. Well, every time I saw him for the next 30 years, and I saw him frequently, diving trips and everything else, you know, I'd always ask him, okay, what, what, what was it? And he'd always look at me and say, I don't know. And finally, finally I confronted him in, in, uh, in front of my, my girlfriend, who I also, you know, was interested in it, wanted to know. And, and Joe looked at both of us, and he said, look, he said, I went out there to Area 51 when they rolled out that Nighthawk, and I'd never seen anything like that before when they rolled it out. He said, and he said, my, and I'm cleared about as high as you can go on stuff like that. And he said, never saw anything like that before. And I don't know anything about what, what you're talking about. So, you know, I knew. And, of course, Joe's passed away now. And I expected after he passed away, I was kind of hoping I was going to get a package in the mail, you know. And, well, no, I didn't. And, uh, but, so I know, I know personally that they've been covering stuff up, you know, well, since the Roswell thing, and even before that, they, they, they've been covering some stuff up, so I know they do. So that, But then there's another thing that I want to mention about this that I personally know about, and this is one. You see, I'm not done researching. I'm not done researching this, this book of, of DeLongs and Hartleys. I have discovered since uh, I wrote that review, I've discovered that one of their main source books is a book called Insiders Reveal Secret Space Programs and Extraterrestrial Alliances by Michael E. Sala, Ph.D. That's, that, that was one of their main sources. And uh, Sala has since written another book, which is even more revealing, called the U.S. Navy Secret Space Program and Nordic Extraterrestrial Alliance. And... Uh, so I've been going through those. Now, in line with that, I want to say this. According to, to Salem, we, the Italians, the Germans, and, and the Americans have all been in possession of crashed alien spacecraft since way before World War II. We've had this the remains of some of these uh, of these these craft before Roswell, and and that the Italians probably got the earliest one that they that they started working on it, and then the Germans started working on it, and and we started working on it, uh, and this was before World War Two. Now, the first the first I think probably the American founder of the New World Order, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, one of the first of the, you know, uh, the guy who put the who put the pyramid with the eye, <laughs> all of that. Anyway, uh, Roosevelt started a propaganda agency during World War II called the National Educational Association or Agency (NEA), and what its purpose was propaganda. And, and, and they still, and it still exists, and they still do it. 
one of the things that they did was they took the comic books and the, and the newspaper comic strips, and they took control of them, and, and the artists and the writers that produced them. And this, of course, included Walt Disney, who was very, you know, very, very patriotic anyway. And uh, um, and we're, we're, well, we could discuss other examples of this, but I want to get right to the I want to cut right to the to the main example that I that I know about. Now, the Italians were working on these these unconventional aircraft. The Germans were working on them. We were trying to work on them, and and uh, and so when the war got going, the War Department decided that maybe we better have some propaganda concerning this. So what did they do? They got Mickey Mouse into one of these things. <laughs> no kidding. They uh, they Walt Disney under under their under their direction created a series that ran in Walt Disney Comics and Stories called The Bat. And The Bat was one of these anti-grav aircraft, you know, like Wonder Woman's Invisible Plane, and it doesn't have a propeller. There's no propeller, there's no jet, there's no nothing. This thing, The Bat was just a great big boomerang-looking thing with a big bubble canopy, and Mickey Mouse flew it, and it was... It was designed and and produced by an American uh, industrialist engineer, uh, sort of a Howard Hughes type, who was called Heed Martin, H-E-E-D-M-A-R-T-I-N. What does that tell you? Now, anyway, uh, and Heed Martin, of course, in those days, all the human characters in in Donald Duck and, and Mickey Mouse comics, the human characters were all they were all this animal. They were made to look like animals. They all had droopy dog, they droopy hanging hound dog ears, and then sometimes they gave them you know they gave them nice little black noses. They 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 tried to animalify the the human characters. So as I recall. In, in looking back to my memory banks, as I've seen pictures of pictures of Heed, uh, you know he had these floppy ears, and I think he had the little the little black nose, you know. So he was kind of kind of kind of a puppified a puppyfied Howard Hughes. <laughs> but anyway, so Mickey <coughs> Mickey was the jockey for the for the bat, and oh boy, did the bat ever have you know. It really shot down Messrs. Smith like 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 you know they were they were clay pigeons and and uh, uh, this story ran in, as a serial in Walt Disney Comics and Stories. Try to find a copy of it today, you won't. It's gone, and I'm I'm sure somebody has 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 it in their collection, and but it's gone now. That. That's just what the bat is. Just one example, but it's a particular example that that, that plays right to this our book and to what uh, what's what uh, uh, this uh, Michael Sala is saying. That yeah, we had this program. In fact, Sala says that the, he claims that the same Nordics, the same Nordic extraterrestrials that that uh, Admiral Byrd was talking to on the North, at the North Pole, uh, that they were in league with the U.S. Navy and helping us d- develop our own uh, anti-grav spacecraft. And, and that this, 
alliance occurred, uh, well, even back back before Bird found them up in the North Pole. And uh, so the bat, Mickey Mouse's bat, was us telling telling the Germans and the Italians, yeah, we got one too, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Mickey Mouse is flying it. <laughs> and it also, of course, in case in case they pulled any of this, these on on our, on us, uh, you know, our own troops and our own people would know. Yeah, well, we got it too. It's just that. You know, Mickey Mouse has got it, so pretty soon we'll, you know, we'll be flying them, uh, you know, with American insignias on them. Yeah, it, it was a – now, this sort of thing went on all during the war. And and Mickey Mouse and Walt Disney, they, they weren't the only ones. I mean, Flash Gordon, oh, boy. Uh, you know, Flash Gordon um, was up on Mongo back in, when the war was just getting started. Uh, when um, when Hitler and Stalin signed the uh, the non-aggression pact, uh, Flash was up on Mongo and and getting ready to go home. And the reason why was that he was getting radio messages from Earth that the Red Sword invaders were uh, were menacing the Earth. So he and Zarkov they they got together and they they and they. They built they built a, a big a big rocket and they filled it up with all these special Mongo weapons to take back to Earth. And off they went, with Dale of course, back to Earth. And while they're in, in flight, while they're in flight, Hitler broke his non aggression pact and and attacked Russia. And at this point, by the time Flash landed and picked up his colonelcy in the Air Corps, and Zarkov starts working for the government. And the time while they're still in flight, we switched enemies. And then it was the dictator, very much like Nazis. So first it was the Russians, first it was the, the communists while while they were on Mongo. By the time they got back, it was the Germans. And in other words, the government controlled the comic books and the Sunday funnies. And that's not the only Basil Wolverton Spacehawk. Oh boy, they even had they even had Spacehawk chasing after tire thieves, uh, you know, because that was a that was a problem. The, the rubber rubber was the rubber shortage, and um, so this this government you know manipulation of the of the media has been going on and propaganda. Uh, and they use, and they even use our use our comic books. And you've noticed, of course, I'm sure you've all noticed how Marvel has has made all the superheroes politically correct, and all of their superheroes. And uh, so this this goes right along with uh, with this, uh, you know, the with the um, the theme here uh, that is being expressed in the book. Now. Robert, uh, the the um, the um, Antarctica business is, as I said, it's it's been it was taken. It came, it actually came up right after you know right right when the Shaver mystery was was going was first going, and so it got it got up it got swallowed up into the Shaver mystery, and it became it it became part of it, uh, but. You know, the Germans actually did 
and 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 the Nazis actually did uh, establish some kind of a facility down in Antarctica back in the 30s. They did. Now, how much the the how much of this is popular myth and how much of this is true, we don't know. Although uh, now uh, it, it is true that right after World War II. Uh, the U.S. Navy launched a full-scale military operation on the South Pole, on, on Antarctica. And they went down there with an aircraft carrier, literally with a battle group. And and uh, there is a very good documentary, government documentary film on it, though, by the way, which, uh, which is very illuminating, which you can watch. But uh, out of this battle group, they, they, they. Well, they ran into a lot of trouble. They lost some ships due to the ice, and then, of course, according to the popular myth and one thing or another, they lost, they lost ships to to Nazi unconventional aircraft too. But whether or not that's true, we don't know. I know, I know one thing that I did discover when I started researching this, that this business about the P fifty one Mustangs is this. This is very, very, very questionable, and. Uh, the aircraft carrier in the battle group was called the Philippine Seas. Now, the Philippine Seas was used, and this is where this probably came about, it was used to transport P-51s to Okinawa. And there's a, there's a photograph of the Philippine Seas with all these, these Mustangs all on the deck, and, and, but they're, they're, they're Air Force planes. They're not, they're not Navy blue. They're all shiny Air Force Mustangs, and they're all crowded on the deck. They don't have folding wings. They, they're, they're just all jammed on the deck there on their way to Okinawa to escort B-29s. And uh, somebody saw that picture, and because the Philippine Seas was um, involved in Operation High Jump, they uh, assumed that, 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 that the fighters were Mustangs. Well, the Navy never could never could successfully uh, land the Mustang on a carrier. They tried, and they gave up. Uh, so the aircraft on the Philippine Seas, on, on the Philippine Seas aircraft carrier, were DC-3s, Dakotas. They were, they were you know, the old, the old Goonie Bird. And uh, Bird figured that, well, if Doolittle can take a B-25 off of an aircraft carrier, I can fly a DC-3 off an aircraft carrier. So he did. And and uh, that they, those were the aircraft that were on. So, uh, you know, some of this stuff, some of this stuff, you just have to kind of, you you, you kind of have to take a take a long look at it. However, now they're claiming that there that they that there's archaeological discoveries down in Antarctica, uh, ancient races, which goes right along with the Shaver mystery, uh, pre pre Adamite, you know. The big long, long-headed ones like in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, and that they've been found down there, and uh, uh, and, and supposedly that that Nazi base, that Nazi base is supposedly still there, and supposedly, according to a number of writers, uh, including Lavenda and Farrell and the rest of them, that the Nazi Antarctica uh, installation has has become a power in, in global finance and, and that, uh, uh, and that they even, you know, that they're, they're just 
sort of a rerun of, well, it got just kind of political on that, and, and I let's let's don't. Uh, and this, in fact, this whole thing is very sensitive politically when you when you start getting into it. Uh, but um, the the, uh, the whole Antarctica mythos of the Nazi bases there and, and the influence of the Nazis in Argentina and and in other places South America. There is a I think he's a Chilean diplomat, but one of the uh, South American diplomats is a firm is a firm uh, supporter of uh, of Shaver and. Uh, and uh, the uh, Nazism, and it's got the two of them kind of, uh, kind of blended together. I personally, you know, I'm, I I enjoy Shaver, and and uh, I think there's truth. I think there's some truth in the Shaver mystery. But as I have said, those Shaver's underground installations are probably in another dimension. It's probably a it's sort of a parallel world, and that, according to Jacques Vallée, is is the same thing that allows these UFOs to make these right angle turns at at speeds like Mach seven, you know, and then and then do a right angle turn. Well, the only way you can do that, really, if, uh, as far as uh, you know, as aerodynamics and, and whatever is, is is if you can go, if you can cross dimensions, and so. Um, uh, it's very, very possible that these are interdimensional theories. That these are inter- that that the interdimensional theory applies to both the UFOs and and the ancient underground installations, and perhaps even the Antarctic installations. I'm, I'm not, uh, and certainly this hollow Earth theory, which is also um, also the bird. The the Admiral Byrd reports uh, go along with this hollow earth. There's a big hole in the there's a, there's a great big hole in the North Pole and a big hole in the South Pole, and you're not allowed to fly over them and all of that. Well, uh, if, if if that hollow earth thing that really would would have would probably have to be another dimension. And and uh, anyway. This is a fascinating subject, and, and like I said, with Secret Machines is a very, very, very well-written book and very, very, uh, very, very entertaining and, and at the same time informative. And I'm looking forward to the sequel, and when the sequel uh, comes, the one that Peter Lavenda is writing with Tom DeLong, and when we get a hold of that, we'll, we'll review that one. And... Uh, and next week, uh, next week, I think we're going to have uh, something by Martin Fox, um, and so uh, we'll see you then. And meanwhile, good magic.